Psalm chapter 83 is a prayer for God's people under the reign of King Jehoshaphat. They were staring down the barrel of another attack while they were living in the promised land. And this attack was gonna be massive. An enemy that was too big, too strong, and way too fierce for them to defeat. And so they knew that they were in trouble. And this prayer is an expression of their cry to God for help in this moment. Their future in the promised land was at stake. This was a place that God had brought them to many years before to dwell in. And for them to remain in this place, they knew that they were gonna to have to fight again. The promised land was always designed to be the inheritance for God's people, where God's protection, God's presence, and God's peace would bless them as they dwelt together as a nation of his people. And yet enemies were constantly trying to remove them and take them away from this land. And so here again, we have another moment when it's happening. And Psalm 83 has been written as a prayer for God's people to be delivered from this enemy. Psalm 83 is not just for the nation of Judah under the reign of Jehoshaphat. It's also for us, for disciples of Jesus, for Christians. This psalm is for Christians who have come into relationship with God through Christ, but are still battling the enemy of sin. It's for those who are frustrated, finding themselves still battling the same old sins and can't believe that it's still taking place. This psalm is for those who are exhausted, who don't know if they can muster up the strength to keep fighting the sin that shows up over and over this enemy against us. It's for those who are discouraged, who thought being a Christian wouldn't be this challenging or hard or difficult, who had hoped that over the course of time, it would become simple and easy. This prayer and even this story has the power to transform not only the way that you fight your enemy, but also the way that we learn to experience victory. This Psalm teaches us two things. First, we've got to be aware of who our enemy is. And second, we've got to learn to ask God for his help. This sounds pretty simple, but it might be actually the hardest work we ever learned to do. But I think if we do it right, we'll find that it's worth it. Let's begin first where the Psalm begins by telling us who our enemy really is. You see in verses about two through eight, the Psalmist reveals a lot of information about the enemy, which is so helpful, not only to Judah, but also to us. He begins by describing all these different nations and telling us where the enemy comes from. Now this list of nations was not the specific list of that particular attack that they were gonna be under, but it was a list that described nations that were to the north, the south, the east, and the west. And the point he was trying to make was that we have enemies on every side constantly attacking us. He then would tell us also what these enemies want. They want to wipe us out and they want to remove our name from the earth. The goal of the enemy is to remove us from the promised land that God has given for us to dwell in. And then we learn also why they want to do it. Because they have a hatred for God. They've come together and make a covenant to be against God. And they work in such a deceptive way. Now, the psalm also gives us one strategic point about our enemy 
that really helps us learn how to fight. And that is, he shows us who they really are. Now you notice he lists so many different names of different nations. But finally in the Psalm, he consolidates them into one single enemy. Verse five, he says, these multiple nations come together in one accord and make a covenant to fight. In verse eight, he says, all of these nations individually come together, then they are the strong arm, singular, of Lot. Now, this is not an indictment, per se, of Lot himself, but of the figure of who Lot is. If you don't remember, Lot was the opposite side of Abraham in the story of Abraham when God promised to bless him. And in that story, we learn that Abraham is the re-entry point of God into the world to come and rescue us. This is the thing our enemy is fighting against. They are opposite or opposed to the work that God has started through Abraham, which is the redemption of all of his people. Our enemy may take the form of many different nations, but it has one root, the arm of Lot. We as the people of God today are in the very same position that the nation of Judah was in. We have an enemy that comes at us from all directions. He wants to remove us from being in the place where God has placed us, and he hates God himself. And for us to be ready to fight well and to survive the attack of this enemy, we've got to actually learn who this enemy is and how he fights. Just like Judah, our enemy has so many different names, but has one single root source. Let me name a few of these deceptive enemies that come after us to fight against us as God's people to try to give you some examples to see the many different enemies that attack us. We have the enemy of greed who says, if you get more of something, you'll find the security you're looking for. We have an enemy of control who says, if you get your way, all things are gonna go right for you. We have an enemy of enmity which says, if I am unsettled or insecure as a person, it is because I've got somebody who's always against me. We've got the enemy that comes after us called strife, who tells us if I battle and defeat a person I perceive as a problem in my life, then all of my problems will finally be gone. We have the enemy of dissension, who says, if I put one person down, I'll be able to connect better with another person. And we use lying and gossip to do that. Or he tells us if we get rid of this one person, then we'll be able to have a better connection with somebody else. We have an enemy of fear who says, if I assume the worst out of people or the worst out of a situation, I'll eliminate any potential for hope and I'll be able to avoid hurt and disappointment. We have an enemy of indulgence who comes to and says, if I just dip into this experience and take full advantage of it, I'll be able to forget about all my problems. These enemies and so many others are constantly coming after us from all directions, trying to take us from the place where God has brought us to. And let me share with you the most effective deception that our enemy uses against us. And that is the place that we're actually battling from. Now, if you remember Judah, when they are in the midst of this battle, they are actually in the promised land. They're fighting to keep what God has brought them into. And that's the same as for us. In Ephesians chapter six, 
when Paul is telling us about the spiritual warfare that we are in, three different times he uses the phrase stand. And what he's telling us is to hold the conquered ground that Jesus Christ won for you. You see, the deception that oftentimes happens is that we have to defeat the enemy for us to then be able to get into Jesus Christ. We have to have victory over all these enemies, then we'll be good enough for God to accept us. And we do that, we muster up all of our energy and we have a big commitment to fight. And when we fall short, we grow weary and tired and we give up and feel so defeated. And the Bible is trying to remind us here that we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. Don't forget that you stand in the place that Jesus has conquered for you. And the enemy is just trying to lure you away. So how are we going to handle these attacks from Satan? Well, we've got to learn to ask God for his help. In the second half of the psalm, you'll notice the psalmist then cries out to God for him to help. And his language is not asking God for a little bit of assistance or just a nudge of some help. He's asking God for complete deliverance because God has done it before and they need him to do it again. This can be really difficult for us. It's hard for us, first of all, just to ask for help. It's also really difficult for us to trust somebody else to come through for us. But lucky for us, we have this story and the king, Jehoshaphat, who actually asked God for help to show us not just words to tell us to ask God for help, but an actual example of what he did in the way that he asked God for help. So in your Bible, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we learn from King Jehoshaphat exactly what he did. It all begins in verse 2 when he's made aware of the attack. He knows it's coming. And that's so important for us as believers that when we become a Christian, we need to be aware that the attack is going to come. We can't live with our head buried in the sand, ignoring the idea that we are fighting a spiritual battle. We've got to become aware of this so that we can be ready to fight the right way. Then we see how Jehoshaphat, aware of the attack that's coming, begins to respond. It all begins in verse 3, when it says in a very subtle way that he was afraid. First of all, Jehoshaphat owned his emotion. He knew that he was afraid. This is really important for us. Emotions inform us about the way that we're experiencing things, but emotions are not great barometers for how we're supposed to respond. You see, when we own our emotions, when we're aware of them, when we recognize them, we then have the ability to control how we respond. We can say, I understand how I'm experiencing this. I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm frustrated, I'm angry. But we then can separate and say, this is not how I'm gonna respond out of my emotion, but I'm gonna respond based upon facts. Jehoshaphat owned his emotion before he moved into how to respond. Secondly, we learn that Jehoshaphat committed to obedience. It says in verse three that he set his face to seek the Lord. Set his face was a phrase that just meant he made up his mind. He had a commitment. He made a decision to seek the Lord. That means that he's going to listen for the voice of God, that he's going to do what God tells him to do, that he's going to follow where God leads him. So he has made a decision that he's going to obey. Now, what's really important about this for us to see 
is that Jehoshaphat doesn't exactly know what he's going to do just yet. But before he knows what he's going to do, and in the midst of his emotional experience of this, he has already decided that whatever comes, he is going to obey God. So as you process the emotion that comes when you are under attack constantly by the devil, you've got to make a commitment, a resolve, a decision that you are going to obey God, even if you don't know in the moment what exactly you're going to do. So number three, Jehoshaphat sought an eternal perspective. You notice that he commanded the whole nation to undergo a fast. Fasting was the way that you could break stride with the regular flow of life. It allowed them to draw back, to begin to pray, to see things from a different light. When you are under attack and you own your emotion and then you commit to obey, sometimes you have to just pause and draw back and register or realign your heart with an eternal perspective. We can get so tossed and turned in the moment of life that we get frustrated and respond and react the ways that we don't want to. You see, when Jehoshaphat commanded the fast, it allowed him to step back and get an eternal perspective on what to do. The number four, Jehoshaphat got himself into a community. I think this is so important about this King Jehoshaphat. When he was under attack, he didn't escape to his private residence. He didn't just call his secret advisors. He commanded the whole nation to fast and then he stood before the whole nation of Judah. You know the most dangerous position to be in when you're in a fight is to be alone. One of the main strategies of our enemy is to divide us up and then to conquer us, to separate us, to cause division amongst us. Whether we recognize it or not, just keeping us emotionally, relationally, and spiritually separated, even if we're physically together, is a strategy he uses to defeat us over and over. He uses our imagination to make us think the worst about other people and even ourselves so that we won't ask for help. He then uses our insecurities to help us justify our own pride and saying, I don't need to ask for help, I've got this. Confession is so powerful to defeat the enemy. At some point in your Christian walk, you have to decide if you want to have victory or you want to have a spotless image because you won't be able to have both. Now move with me down to about verse six. And we see then Jehoshaphat beginning to pray with boldness. And he used prayer for two really important things. The first one was this. He used prayer to restore his faith in God. You notice in verse six, he reminds himself in prayer who God is. God, you rule all things. All things are in your hand. You're sovereign, you're powerful. Nothing can be done against you. Verse 7, he reminds himself what God has done. All the things that God has done up until this point, the victories that he's had, the conquering that he's done, Jehoshaphat reminds himself. And then he reminds himself the promises God has made. He says, God, you told us if we come to this place and cry out to you and say we need you, you will show up and you'll deliver us. So this prayer restores his faith in God, but it also is the place where he requests the help from God. It's in prayer that we ask God for his help. Now notice specifically how he does this, starting in verse 10. In verse 10, Jehoshaphat tells God his specific 
problem. He names the exact enemies that are coming after him. And you and I must learn how to do this in our prayer. You see, generic prayer opens us up to generic help. But when we specifically name our enemy, God, I'm being tempted right now with greed or with enmity in this relationship. God, I'm being tempted to be in fear again and not faith. When you start naming these enemies, you then are opening yourself up to real help from God to defeat them. In verse 12, he asks God for complete help. You notice there at the beginning, he says, God, I need you to do this for me. Will you do it? He doesn't say, God, give me a nudge or the wisdom that I need or just give me the words to say. He actually asks God to fight the battle. I want to encourage you with this point next time. As you become aware of the enemy attacking you and naming him and knowing exactly who it is that's coming after you, try God in this. Say to God, God, I'm being tempted with this. God, the enemy of greed or fear, the enemy of strife, the enemy of dissension is coming after me right now. And I'm going to ask you, God, to actually defeat that enemy for me. Show up in your power. Do your might. Do things that you can do that I cannot do and have this victory for me. You might be surprised how many times God will show up and give you a victory in his strength. Then as you move down to verse 12, you notice when Jehoshaphat tells God a specific problem and asks God for complete help, it allows Jehoshaphat to remember his position. Listen how Jehoshaphat says it in verse 12. He says, for we are powerless against the great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, once Jehoshaphat is in this position, where he is requesting the help from God and remembering who God is, he then is able to hear the word from God. Not a new word, but new ears to hear God. And you and I can be in the same position. When we humble ourselves and bring ourselves to ask God for his help to defeat these enemies, we don't get a new word from God, but we get new ears to hear what God has always been saying to us. You notice in verse 17, Jehazel says this to the people of God, you will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And this word, even before they experienced victory in the battle, gave the people of Judah and Jehoshaphat reason to worship. They began praising God. Now, why did they start worshiping? Well, you see, worship happens the moment you actually believe what is true about God. All of our sin happens when we are believing and living out of the belief of lies. And we begin to have victory over our enemy, over sin, when we believe what is true about God, which moves us to worship him for his great power, his great grace, his justice, his mercy, and his willingness to deliver us from our enemy. And look at the result. After Jehoshaphat and his people go out worshiping, they reach where the place where the battle is going to happen, and they find that the enemies have turned on themselves and the victory is over and the spoil is there for them to gather. In verse 30, it says this, so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. 
This is the rest that God has wanted to give each and every one of us. The deep breath to know that things are okay because you have a God in heaven and a God with you who is fighting in front of you and beside you and behind you, protecting you against your enemy. You see, the situation that Judah faced in that moment that Jehoshaphat was under is exactly like us. We have an enemy that is too great for us and we're unable to win on our own. We have an enemy of sin and death that you and I, without the help of God, cannot defeat. And because of that, God came, just like in the story of Jehoshaphat, to save us. But in our story, God came to be with us and like us in the form of Jesus. He lived our life. He fought our fights. He beat our enemy. His whole life was a fight. When he was in the Garden of Eden, he was fighting for us. As he was enduring the beatings, he was fighting for us. As he walked up the hill and hung on the cross, he was fighting for us. But his fight was different than any other fight that we have ever experienced. Because Jesus wasn't fighting to live. He was fighting to die. You see, he had every opportunity. He was fighting every temptation that lured him away from his purpose on earth to go to the cross and die. Satan offered it to him. He said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. I'll make you a king without the cross. When he was in the garden, his soul was tormented by this thought, but he resolved, like Jehoshaphat, to set his face to seek the Lord. Jesus was fighting to die, not to live. And through his death, you and I are delivered from the power of our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And we have the victory, not only in eternity with Jesus, but now the power with us to fight against all these enemies that try to take us from being in Christ. You know, Jesus fighting to die was not just our source of salvation, it was also our example. You see, most of us spend our lives fighting to live, holding on to control, using our own strength, depending on our own wisdom. And in the midst of all of that, we have to learn, like Jesus did, to actually fight to die to ourself so that we can live to God. That's why baptism is a grave. When you go into the waters of baptism, that's where your sins are washed away. The blood of Christ cleanses you. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but in that grave is where the old person who depended on himself or herself, not on God, died. And when you raised up out of those waters of baptism, you were raised to walk in a new life, which is a life completely depending upon the strength, the grace, the power of God. If you are not a Christian yet, if you have not yet put on Jesus Christ in baptism, but you believe that Jesus was the Son of God, you believe that he is your way to salvation, you've got to come to the water by faith and say, Jesus, I give you my life. I die to myself and I want to live with you. If we can help you do that, will you contact us? There's a phone number in the description and on the screen right now that you can call or text and somebody will help you become a Christian today, right now, if today is your day. Please, would you just let us help you?